Hello, this is Disturbed Minds, and I'm your host, Maddie Day. Before we get into the story, I need to let you know that this is a true crime podcast, so some content may be difficult to hear or may be triggering for some listeners. Any especially disturbing stories will have further disclaimers. I am no expert, I am just fascinated by the darker side of humanity, and I enjoy discussing it with friends. I never intend to glamorize these perpetrators or their crimes, only to honor the victims and their memories. tell you my Ontario story, which you're probably already familiar with because it happened in good old Oshawa. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you can probably guess what it is. Yeah, I think I have an idea. So I tried to find background on him. I try to usually, but I couldn't really find anything, and that's something I keep running into with, like, the Canadian stories is so much less is released about the people involved than in the States. So I'm going to start with telling you about the evidence. September 11th, 2017, which was also, I was 11 days into living in Oshawa, fishermen found a torso in the Oshawa Harbor that was later identified as Rory Hosh, a 19-year-old young pregnant woman who had gone missing in August. And... Adam Strong, who is the perpetrator, his phone pinged in the harbor on September 4th. Adam Strong lived in a split-level home, so he lived in a basement apartment, and other people rented the main section of the house, and on December 29th, 2017, the tenants who lived in the main section of the house uh, in downtown Oshawa called a plumber to snake their drains because there was some sort of clog and the plumber found a 13 to 14 inch long flesh like substance with hair oh please yeah pretty fucking nasty <laughs> like you expect to see some gross shit when you're a plumber but not that oh yeah constable kevin park arrived at the scene at 8 p.m I'm not sure exactly what time the plumber arrived, but it wasn't too far before the constable arrived. And then three more officers arrived shortly after, and they went to Strong's basement apartment to ask what he had been flushing. So I'm not sure how exactly they figured out it was him right away, but it seemed like they did. And when he answered the door, he said, quote, 
Okay, you got me. The gig's up. It's a body. If you want to recover the rest of her, it's in my freezer. End quote. He just admitted it, basically. Yeah. They just knocked on his door and he was like, yeah, sorry, oops. And he had been, obviously, cutting her apart and flushing her down the toilet. The rest of the body was found in a chest freezer in his bedroom. In garbage bags. But who the fuck keeps a freezer in their bedroom? They know basement apartments are small. But come on, there's got to be more options than that. And it gets grosser. Her blood was found on his walls, ceiling, and an air mattress. And his semen was found on her body. Her bloody sneakers were found in a bag beside his bed. And investigators found a hunting knife that is made specifically for gutting animals in his home. Oh. He was into hardcore violent bondage, as the articles put it. And he had some, I guess, toys and equipment and devices to do with this, which uh, her blood was found on some of them. In July 2018, so the following summer, tissue on a hunting knife and blood in the freezer were found and linked to Candace Fitzpatrick, who disappeared in spring 2018. So, this man is so disgustingly messy... I mean, obviously he's disgusting, period. But he's so disgustingly messy that this ten years later tissue, not just like traces of DNA, but tissue identified as hers is still found on his stuff. That is gross. So fucking gross. Like, ugh. Like, I've been in gross houses. I know gross people, but that... Just thinking of something, even just not in the context of murder, but just, like, remnants of anything, even food or your own DNA, being ten years old in your house. Like, he clearly never cleaned, obviously. I mean, Rory's blood was everywhere. And in his interview with the homicide detectives... He admitted to indecency of a corpse, but wouldn't explain how she died. So he admitted that he cut her up and tried to flush her and tried to dispose of her in Lake Ontario. But he wouldn't say how she died in the first place and how he got a hold of her remains. Oh. And Candace's remains were never found, unfortunately. Just bits of DNA belonging to her were found in his home and I actually have a relative who works at the big DNA lab in Toronto that does a lot of the testing for crim- well they at least her department is forensic so they deal with a lot of criminal stuff and her co-worker and friend was actually the person who identified Candace's DNA which I thought was 
Another what? was a cool, con- yeah, it's a cool connection. Strong was initially charged with indecency of a corpse, because um, obviously at first that's all they could prove. Uh, but then by November eighth, twenty eighteen, he was charged with two counts of first degree murder. Good. Yeah, so it didn't take long, at all. Mm-hmm. This this whole process up until COVID becomes a factor was happening very quickly, which is really good. His trial began September 28th, 2020. Not too long ago. No. And so there was less than two years between when he his charge was changed from first-degree murder to the trial beginning, which seems long but really isn't that long. The wheels of judge, justice move very, very slowly. And after finding Candace's DNA, they wanted to find as much as possible of hers and try and find her remains because obviously it's easier to prove the case if you have a body. And there's also the other factor, okay, these deaths were 10 years apart. Is there anyone else in between? You know, because... And I'll get more into that later. But they wanted to find, obviously find as much as possible... And I believe a good chunk of the time they were trying to find the rest of Candace's remains. And he obviously was not cooperating. So he agreed that the prosecution proved he dismembered them. But he strongly believed that they didn't have enough evidence to prove that he killed them. Which is like the fucking cockiness. So he, of course, pled not guilty to the first-degree murders of both young women. The Crown, which is the prosecutor in Canada, alleged that the murder took place either during sexual assault and or while they were being forcibly confined. So, could have been both, or he could have just been holding them captive. So, mid-March 2021... He was found guilty of first-degree mor- murder in the death of Rory, but unfortunately only manslaughter in the death of Candace. And obviously her family was very s- upset about this. Mm-hmm. For sure. It's assumed that Candace suffered a similar fate to Rory, but due to the amount of time that had passed, there wasn't enough evidence to prove that he had the intent to kill, to kill Candace, only that he had killed her. So, yeah, they could prove that he did it, but they couldn't prove that he had wanted to or that he meant to. Mm-hmm. And in Canada, first-degree murder charges carry an automatic sentence of life without the possibility of parole for 25 years. So, on May 28, 2021... He was sentenced to life without parole for 25 years for Rory's death. And he apparently seemed very shocked that he was found guilty. Which just adds to the cockiness. Yeah. And potential it's psychopathy. There's no cockiness. No. And he is not an attractive man either. He is like... I know a lot of time they say... Well, I say it too. 
these guys don't look like what you expect. Mm-hmm. He looks exactly like what you expect. And he was also sentenced to a concurrent sentence of 18 years for Candace's death. And now, um, concurrent means he serves it at the same time as the life sentence. So, here's some, I'm going to share some other details about the case in general, I guess. So, both of these young women, Candace and Rory, at the time of their disappearances were essentially homeless. So, they had no set residence, they just kind of drifted. They suffered from drug addiction and occasionally did sex work to feed their addictions. Um, detectives in Durham are looking into other cases of missing young women and girls in the area, seeing if they can be tied to him, which is really good. A lot of times, once the perp is in, has been sentenced and he's in jail, that kind of gets washed away, but for the last... I read, which was April 2021, I believe. So, not too long ago. They were still pursuing it, which is really good. That's good. Yeah, that's great. Um, An eerie fact is he lived one block away from the police station in downtown Oshawa. Wow. And that's, that's really close to our campus, too. Yeah, that, too. Very close to downtown campus. I actually... One of my first days on campus, I actually, um, ran into her mom downtown, putting out flyers, uh, the poor woman was a wreck, obviously, and she was putting up flyers and just asking every person she saw if they had seen her daughter, it was so sad, and obviously, him living near the police station doesn't really mean anything, but it's just a really creepy fact that this brutality was going on so close to the police. Mm -hmm. So during the trial, Durham Region Police Officer Constable Christopher Kane said he had become fairly well acquainted with Rory, whom he'd met while patrolling around downtown Oshawa. said during the trial he was so concerned about her well-being after an encounter he had with her August 2017 that he offered to connect her with services that might help her out. And he said, quote, I knew I needed to do something for her. I'd never seen her in such a low state. Maybe I waited too long, end quote. He, as he said this, his voice was obviously breaking up. He definitely appears to feel some sort of blame, and it's really sad. He's been a police officer in Durham region for more than 20 years. And so he's used to this community and seeing people like this. And it just really seemed to get to him. Yeah. Which I is, mean, I, I feel that way too. That's, that's so sad. Yeah. And it's really sad. Um, but there's also a kind of a positive side to that, that it's, it's good to hear that there are police officers in this area that you and I are so familiar with that care so much about the community. Yeah. He said at the time she was very obviously impaired and not in a good mental state and 
offered to find her some help through Durham Connect, and she accepted and thanked him for caring. He filed a report about his encounter with her that evening, and she ended up being accepted into a program through Durham Connect, but he never actually got to tell her that. Oh, so, no. He never... Yeah. She never got to find out that she was going to get help. Um, and I have a couple other facts that I don't didn't necessarily get from a reliable source. Like, I, I heard from people at the time. So, it wasn't in an article or anything. But the summer after, so summer 2018... I was chatting with some co-workers and we were talking about this and it was, his name had been released, obviously, and this one lady I worked with was telling me she went and she decided to creep him on Facebook and she just looked through his posts, he, his Facebook was pretty public, it's since gone, it's been taken down, uh, it was taken down by the time she told me this. But she said that was the first thing she did when she heard his name and she looked him up on Facebook and he had a bunch of really, really creepy photos. He had a bunch of photos, like his profile pictures, he was posing with these big knives, like hunting knives and swords. And he had a picture of a doorway and there was handcuffs coming down from the top corners and it was captioned something like, home is where your handcuffs are. Jeez, um, yeah, that's, that's not creepy at all. Yeah, and he had a picture of a bonfire, and she said it looked like some sort of, like, package, like, wrapped up to mail sort of package in the fire pit, and the caption was something like, you'd never guess what's in here, or... You have no idea what's in here. Like something super ominous like that. I don't remember exactly. And he had a picture of a hot dog that said this isn't what you think it is. Um, cannibalism? Potentially. Now that has never been confirmed. Mm -hmm. None of what I said about his Facebook has been confirmed in any article or anything, but... I trust my source, but of course I could also be misremembering because I was told this yeah, summer 2018, so it's been a few years, so don't quote me on any of that, but really really creepy stuff. I'll show you a picture of him. I'll send you a picture of him as well. And um, actually let me do that right now again so I can get your reaction. Okay, so there's one photo with the sword. Oh gosh. But he's, he's exactly what you'd picture a murderer to be. Yeah, and here's one uh, where he looks a little scruffier, a little rougher. Yikes. He's very much what you'd expect. Like, when I first heard about this, wasn't too far off from what I imagined. Because <laughs> you always have that idea of a killer in your head, and... He's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. And, again, like I said before, this was, like, this case really hits home for me because 
she was, Candace was 19 at the time, Rory, I believe, was 18 or 19, I was 18 at the time of this happening, so this was uh, really intense for me, because it was someone my age, and in a city I had just moved to, all on my own, uh-huh. didn't know anyone, completely new world, and just... I knew the trial was coming up, and then I saw it, I got, like, an alert from Twitter on my phone or something, because I googled it enough, (laughs) of when when he was convicted, and it was just, like, this weight that I didn't know was there was just lifted off my shoulders. Like, I knew he was in custody the whole time, but it's just different when he's actually found guilty. Life without the possibility of parole for 25 years is the standard automatic sentence when someone is convicted of first-degree murder in Canada. Like, that is what Paul Bernardo got. Uh-huh. That's what Picton got. That's what... That's just what they're charged with. So, I'm hoping as kind of backwards as it sounds, I'm hoping that the system recognizes because he will automatically in 25 years from now he will automatically get a parole hearing and it's not like I think in the states you have to apply first and then you get the hearing and then they decide but it's an automatic hearing here I'm hoping that what he did that his crimes are seen as horrific enough that he never gets out yeah Because I know Paul Bernardo just recently had a parole hearing because they have to give him a parole hearing. But he doesn't actually have a chance. Like, a lot of these people, they just get the hearings because legally they have to be given the hearings. But they're never actually going to get out. It's just how our system works. And when the judge sentenced him, the judge said, "You're you're never getting out again. And I don't think he will. There's always the fear... But it's not likely with how violent and gruesome these were and how it seems like he just doesn't care. Like, how he was just like, oops, sorry, yep. He got me. Yeah. Like, he doesn't seem, it seems like, from what I've read, he just cares that he was caught. Mm -hmm. And so I have a little bit about psychology about his psychology specifically oh. it's not much but it's a little bit so Michael Arntfield is a criminology professor at Western University and he believes that there is more to Adam Strong than we already know and he strongly believes that Strong might be a serial killer which from what I've learned so far I totally agree with. Uh-huh. And Artfield said, quote, it's very rare for that kind of offender to take that kind of hiatus, end quote. So he's referring to um, the... The tenure gap? Yeah, the gap between Candace and Rory. Like, part of the definition of a serial killer is they have cooling off periods, but not ten years. Usually it's months or a couple years, not ten years. And it's in the same home, too. 
So it's not like it has to do with him moving or anything. And as far as I know, it doesn't seem like someone was... Now, I didn't... Like, I don't know this for sure. But as far as I read, it doesn't seem like anyone lived with him during that time period. So, like, he couldn't. I'm guessing that partly based off how fucking disgusting his place was. Mm-hmm. And Artfield also said, quote, At the very least, he had blooming sadistic tendency. Sadists and child molesters can't be rehabilitated, end quote. So that kind of adds to the, um, he'll probably never actually get out. Mm-hmm. Because if he really is a sadist, then he can't be rehabilitated. So if he gets out again, he'll just do it again. And it's unlikely that a man this sadistic and violent took such a long break between offenses. So Michael Artfield strongly believes that Strong at least committed some sort of other crime, might not have been murder, but he had to be doing other things as well. Oh yeah, for sure. I I can I can get behind that. Yeah, I think there's got to be more murders. Um, and I know part of the plan. I believe his house is supposed to be demolished soon, but I don't know if it's still being searched or anything to see if he's connected to anything else. Actually, let me check. It might have been demolished by now. Okay, so no, it it hasn't been torn down yet, but a lot of uh, people in the community are pushing for it to be torn down, and there's been protests about it as well, mm-hmm. which I, under- I 100% understand, for sure. I feel really bad for the people who lived above him. Like, I don't yeah, know. I don't know. I'm how- also surprised he wasn't kind of kicked out if he was renting the place because he was so messy. Yeah, I guess the landlord never checked. Yeah. I mean, plenty don't ever check. Mm-hmm. I just want the money, but, you know, I'm I'm very surprised he wasn't yeah. kicked out for being so messy. Another reasoning for why he probably committed another offense some sort of violent crime in between, but I think murder, and so does this crim professor. Usually, guys like this, they don't get sloppy the second time around. Like, he was able to murder a young woman and hide it and completely dispose of her remains to the point where they cannot be found and was not caught for ten years... And then he does it again and is caught almost immediately. She went missing the end of August. He was caught September 11th. That's a very short period of time between when he murdered her and when he was caught. And, like, statistically speaking, these men usually get sloppy after a few because they get cocky. But I guess the same can be said for the amount of time after Candace's death. Who knows? Like, he could have been nervous at first, so he was trying to lay low, and then he went, well, it's been almost ten years. 
but we might never know, unfortunately. Hopefully we will. Hopefully if there is another young woman, I keep saying girls, but they were adults. Hopefully if there was another man or woman or child or anything in between, hopefully we find out if there was. I hope so, yeah. If there wasn't, then we might never know why he got sloppy. It doesn't sound like he ever intends on talking. But if he is a psychopath, then he just might. Because they often like to talk about themselves. So you never know. Um, And this also has never been confirmed. But one of the things I heard that summer summer 2018 um from what i heard they did him and rory had met before i mean ash was not really that big if you're from there you usually know other people from there like i know a couple people from the university who had contact with her in their teenage years because it's a fairly small community when it comes to people who like were born and raised there And live there permanently. But anyways, so from what I heard, and again, this was not confirmed in any of the articles I read, so it's speculation. But from what I heard, he worked at the gas station in the corner store near where she usually hung out or where she usually stayed. So they were kind of familiar with each other. She would often go in there and grab snacks, whatever, what what you normally do. And he would sometimes sell her smokes, even though he knew she was underage. He didn't bother checking, or he just didn't bother checking for ID. And it is believed that they had developed some sort of acquaintanceship. I don't know if that's the correct term. But some sort of nice enough to each other that occasionally he gave her a ride if it was really bad weather and they ran into each other or something like that. Mm-hmm. And which I also think speaks again to how small the community really is when you take out the student factor. It is a fairly small city when you don't count the students who only live there temporarily. But anyways, so one of the theories that some of the people of Oshawa have, and I don't know if any police have this theory, again, they don't tend to, like I said at the beginning, they don't tend to divulge as much information in Canada as they do in some other countries. But um, one of the theories that some people in Oshawa have is they had, they kind of knew each other and he had become infatuated with her. And he perceived their relationship, if you even want to call it that, as something more than what it was. And he might have thought they were dating or they would be or whatever and then he found out she was pregnant and it obviously was not his and it kind of goes from there and again I don't know but it doesn't seem like a far off theory if he is a sadist if he is a psychopath that is something that would upset these kind of guys especially if he believed they were in some sort of relationship, which, again, as far as I know, was not mutual. 
as far as I know, he was just a guy she knew in town. But he seemed to think there was more to it than that. And people think he got angry when he found out it wasn't his. And it just kind of went from there. Okay. Which also feeds into how fucking terrifying it is to just exist as a woman. Yeah. Like, the guy at the corner store could be so infatuated with you that when he finds out you've slept with someone else, your life's over. Like, that's so tragic. And I don't know if the same similar thing can be said about Candace, like if they knew each other beforehand, I don't know. Um, it's quite possible. And they also don't know, cause I did mention the two, like Candace and Rory did a little bit of sex work. So I don't know if that's why they went to his home or if he had kidnapped them or anything that hasn't been released either. I don't know if that kind of thing can even be found out without him talking. And if he does, there's also, I don't know if they'd even believe anything he says. Because he's definitely not a trustworthy source. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's just so sad and scary. And obviously, I I also want to say that while... Yes, she was technically homeless. Yes, she was addicted to drugs. Yes, she dabbled in sex work. Both of them. But that doesn't mean they deserved any of this. Yeah, they don't deserve what happened to them. Yeah, and I know you know that, but I just feel like it needs to be said when dealing with, when talking about stuff like this, because this often happens. Like I talked about in my episode about the serial killer in Ohio. His victims were drug addicts. Many were homeless. Many also were sex workers. So when they were reported missing, no one really cared. And now I'm not saying the same can be said about the Durham Region Police. I don't know about Candace's. There was... I couldn't find too much about Candace's case. But in Rory's case, it seems like they did take it very seriously. Because again... She went missing in August, and it was pretty quick that they were caught, that he was caught, and that could just be DNA and everything. But, again, I don't want to say necessarily that the Durham Region Police did anything wrong in this situation, because I don't think they did. Um, It sounds like everything was handled very well. And, like, with the officer who was helping her, helping Rory try to get help, and set her up with a program. Like, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But I did want to point out that in many cases, young women like them are easily forgotten. And it's very sad. And obviously, you know, from also being a student in Oshawa, and especially downtown Oshawa, there is quite a drug and homelessness issue in Oshawa. And Durham region, as a, Durham region as a whole, but it's almost like they all seem to flock to Oshawa. Mm-hmm. And it's really sad and unfortunate. And 
that's something that can be changed and needs to be changed. I went to a talk a couple years ago. I don't remember what it was initially about, but we were talking they started talking about the homeless population in Oshawa and how large the number seems to be versus other cities and the one woman was saying that part of that problem is because there's no regular shelter, homeless shelter in all, in all of Durham region. <laughs> so there's emergency shelters for bad weather, if they're sick or something like that. There's youth shelters, but there's no regular shelter that an adult can just go spend the night at. There's lots of soup kitchens and uh, there's quite a few places that give out free food. Mm-hmm. But there's nowhere for them to stay the night. Yeah, and this is kind of related to what I did in one of my courses where I had to research all the homeless kind of places around the Durham region and in Ontario because they were trying to make one of these uh, shelters that where people can come and it's not just an emergency shelter. It's there for um, adults who need it whenever, especially with COVID. Yeah. And now, I don't know if it's being worked towards or anything. I don't know details like that. But at the time of this talk, which I believe is in 2018 or 19, so it's been a couple years, but she was saying that basically their options are the street, find a way to get to Peterborough, or find a way to get to Scarborough. And those are the two closest options they have, Scarborough or Peterborough. Mm-hmm. And which might not seem too far to you and I, like me especially, I have a car. Scarborough and Peterborough don't seem that far from Oshawa. But when you have no resources and no money, that's really far. Mm-hmm. An hour is really far when you are begging for money on the street and are barely getting anything because of how people view homeless people and that's another thing that bothers me so much is just how people see homeless people like like people think it's their business how someone ends up on the street like unless unless you're going to help them it's none of your business yeah and even then it's still really not and my parents always, growing up, encouraged us to give. And one of the things we would do is if we went to the city, they always had change on them. And they would encourage my sister and I to walk the toonie over to the homeless person and give it to them. They'd tell us, make eye contact with them, say hello, acknowledge them as a human being. Because that's one of the big things for them, is they're not acknowledged as human beings. Many people will give them money and not even look them in the eye and just keep walking. And while the money's good, of course, like, it's good that people are giving them money, but it's dehumanizing to have money thrown at you and they can't even look you in the eye. And my mom always said, because lots of people have concerns about giving homeless people money because of what they may or may not spend it on. Um... I remember talking to my mom about it, and what she said really stuck out to me. And she said, once the money is in 
their hands. It's their money. And who am I to judge how they survive the night? Yeah. Because, frankly, if I had to live on the street, I wouldn't be sober. So, Mm -hmm. there's no way I'd be sober. It'd be so difficult. So, it's not fair to blame these people for how they survive. Sometimes that's the only way. And even if it's not the only way, even if they're addicted, so they're spending it on heroin or coke or anything else instead of spending it on food, that's still not my fucking business. Once it's in their hand or their cup or whatever, it's not mine anymore. Once it leaves my hand, it's not mine anymore. It's not my business. I could talk about these topics all night. Yeah, yeah. Like, I just went off on homelessness. There's many other things we could address here. Like, the fact that drug addiction is an, a legitimate illness, which you and I have learned in school. It's an actual illness, and it can be hereditary, too. It can run in families. You can be more susceptible to becoming addicted to um, alcohol or drugs or whatever. It can run in your family. And then there's also the topic of sex work that we could also get into that I could also talk about for hours. Um, But I will spare you that and save that for another time. I think I've already gone off a bit on it in previous episodes. Which, being said, um, I realize now how that came out. That sounded like I was going to talk negatively about it. I was not. Um, Sex work is real work. Sex workers matter. I did a presentation. I took a class, a political science class, called Making Change or something like that. It was... It was so cool. The lectures were basically, like, each class was about a different social movement across the globe, and it was so cool. Wow. Yeah, and, you like, you learn stuff like how different ones got started and how they developed over time. So our final project, we didn't do an exam, we just did a project. We had to pick some sort of social movement. It could be from any culture, any country, any topic. And we had to do a presentation about it. And my group, we did the sex workers movement. I already knew quite a bit, but I still learned so much. And it was so interesting because I remember even my perspective from high school to university was like high school. My high school perspective was more like we shouldn't judge these women because they don't have a choice. To now it's like. We shouldn't judge this woman because it's their choice. Well, also, Mm -hmm. like, sex trafficking and sex work are two completely different topics. And I know, personally, when I was younger, I saw them as one. But they're two extremely different topics. And I've learned that in my old age. (laughs) But again, I won't continue going on about that. Do you have any... Final comments, questions, or concerns? I do not. That was definitely... Definitely a a story. Well, it's not a story, but... (laughs) Definitely a heavy Uh, hitter. Yeah, and and so close, too. Like, I I still live in Oshawa, and I, I go to work downtown, too. Yeah. It's scary shit, but hey... He's locked away forever, so at least there's that. 
Mm-hmm. Obviously not that that is for sure the end of anything like this, but gotta look at the positives sometimes. And at least these families have some sort of closure. Rory's more than Candace's. Hopefully they can find more of Candace's remains over time. Uh, maybe as forensic technology develops more because who knows what it's going to be like in 10 years from now. Like when she went missing to when Rory went missing, it changed so much. So who knows in 10 more years how much it'll change. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Disturbed Minds. Please like and subscribe wherever you listen. And don't forget to follow the show on Instagram for show details, pictures, and more.